John chapter 2, as we continue through this powerful book. Hey, why are we looking at John? Why in the world are we going verse by verse through the first three chapters of John? Well, we need to make sure that as Christians, we're, we're not merely moral people. We need to understand that, that we're moral people because of Christ, not because of ourselves. We don't draw up morality from within ourselves because we're, we're, if we're left ourselves, we're very immoral people. We need Jesus Christ. And God inspired the apostle John to write the book that we're going through so that we can understand fully who Jesus Christ is. So we sing about him and we preach and teach about him so that we are then believing in him and through that belief we're empowered to then be moral people for his glory and not for ours. So as we continue now through John, we start in chapter 2 and I'm anxious to jump in and go. Let's look at the first 12 verses and follow with me as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, we bow now before your word. I bow now before your word very intentionally. And we all ask that you would speak to us through this passage. That we would understand the difficult phrases. That we would embrace the most glorious phrases for all that they are and that we would leave here changed and worshipful as a result of encountering you in these precious 12 verses. And I pray this for the name of Jesus. Amen. The world's definition of power is really, really messed up. It's pathetic, <laughs> it's corrupted, and it's nothing like real, true, authentic power. Consider for a moment a businessman. Business people are considered powerful by what we see in their accumulation of wealth. Cars, boats, planes, sky rises. In fact, we even really esteem the power of those business executives that can have their own TV show. 
where they mock people that can't shape up to the type of employee that they think they've been. Have you ever seen The Apprentice? The world calls that power, the accumulation of things, squashing out suppliers and customers along the way so that he or she can gain more and more power. That's not powerful. How about the athlete? The athlete strives hard during his competition to defeat his opponent. But what do we see in our athletes? What are you going to see this afternoon? You're going to see a trash-talking athlete who started in the locker room, took it out to the sidelines in pregame, did it in the huddle, got up to the line of scrimmage, still mouthing off and talking trash, goes through and sacks the quarterback or scores a touchdown, and then is trash-talking on his way back to the huddle. And we look at that and say, he's powerful. That's not powerful. Let me show you power in these two examples. The businessman is powerful when he conducts transactions that are mutually beneficial for him and his supplier or his customer. Profit, yes. Profits are not evil, but fair profits. And he'll conduct a transaction in such a way that he wins and his supplier wins or his customer wins. He doesn't take advantage of people. And he's powerful to the point that he'll even do it to where no one knows that he forewent some profit because he knew that would be to the detriment of his customer. That's powerful. The athlete. The powerful athlete's the one that does bust through the line and traps the quarterback 10 yards for a loss, and he gets up off the ground and he goes back to the huddle to do it again. That's powerful. Because he's controlled himself and all his sinful tendencies to say, look at me. No, in power, in a moment of power, he harnessed that. And he said, I, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to go back and get in the huddle, and I'm going to come out and do it again. I'm not going to dance in the end zone like the New York Giants wide receiver who does it for the name of his dead mother. That is not powerful. Run to the sidelines and wait for your team to get the ball again so that you can run your routes and score. That's powerful. The NFL is full of 275-pound weaklings. We don't see power on the football field like that, do we? See physical power. We don't see internal power. Well, I'm going to show you this morning, Jesus Christ is powerful. We're going to look at power over the elements of the world, but we're going to see power, raw power, in true humility. And the call is for us to be powerful in a humble way. And it's the most powerful strength that there ever has been, what we will see here in Jesus Christ. So come close and listen to the story and apply this to yourselves as we go through these 12 verses. And I'm going to tell you, it is a challenge to preach every single Sunday because there is so much in these 12 verses that we could do a four-hour sermon if I don't watch it. So I have to focus on what the Lord leads me to focus on, and there's some things that we have to forego, and that's why we have Sunday nights, and if you ever have questions about things that weren't covered, come Sunday night and you'll have a chance to voice those to us. But let's look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and let's get the scene set for what's going on here in this passage. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So we're at a wedding scene here in Cana of Galilee. This is where Nathanael hails from. And Mary's in attendance. 
Incidentally, Joseph is missing from this passage. It's believed that Joseph has already passed away. The last mention of Joseph is, is when he uh, and Mary take Jesus to the temple to Jerusalem at the age of 12, and Jesus disappears for a while, and they panic because they don't know where their little boy is. We never hear of Joseph again after that um, citation in Scripture. And there's also this absence of Joseph when Jesus is hanging on his cross, and he says to his mother, to behold John, who now will be his son, to care for her since Jesus is leaving and going to be at the right hand of the Father. So Joseph is missing, Mary's there. Jesus and his disciples seemingly are invited to this as well. That's what the passage says. So maybe this is a common friend of the family. Don't know. But Mary acknowledges that they've run out of wine, and this could indicate that Mary was in a serving role at this wedding, not merely just a spectator, because why would she care herself with the issue of running out of wine? So maybe she's serving. We need to understand that weddings in this day and age are not like weddings that we have here. At best, ours are a day and a half process, right? Back in this time, weddings were seven-day events. And they had to have wine for seven days. So we're talking about massive quantities of wine, and they have run out. We don't know what day this wedding festival is in. And they needed wine to cover these seven days, and it's run out. And we need to understand before we proceed what's significant about wine in this passage. There's a lot significant about wine. What I'll tell you right now is that wine was a symbol of joy and of celebration and of blessing. If you look at wine references throughout the Old Testament, you're blessed when your wine vats are full. So these people are not going to be joyful and celebrating in a moment, and they're not going to be experiencing blessing because the wine has run out. So hold that thought as we continue. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Be careful with what you do with this verse. There are many who have abused this verse and said that Jesus is a disrespectful son. There's many that say that Jesus is disagreeing with his mother and not honoring her. And we need to understand clearly and humbly what's going on in Jesus' response to his mother. So first of all, I will acknowledge his response is blunt. It's a blunt response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? But we don't need to read this in a 21st century mindset. I'm telling you, if one of my kids referred to my wife as woman, (laughs) as we understand that, uh, they'd be calling me man in a moment. Sir, because we'd go in the back room and have to deal with that. So that is disrespectful perhaps in our day and age, but it's not disrespectful in Jesus' day and age. In fact, I'll give you another place where Jesus refers to Mary this way, and he's hanging on the cross in the passage that I've already talked to you about in John 19, verse 26. Jesus is on the cross, and he says to her, Woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, Behold your mother. So he's making provision for Mary now that he's going to die and he's going to leave. That's respect, isn't it? He's providing for his mother, and he refers to her as woman. This is a common way for her to be referred to in that day and age. It's not an endearing term. It's not mother. That's softer and more family-oriented. But woman is not a, not a phrase of disrespect in this passage. Don't think for a moment that Jesus was verbally backhanding her. Some have said that. That is not what's going on at all. But it does tell us something. We see here that this statement 
marks a change in Jesus' relationship with his mother. Because when he's 12 and going to the temple, he doesn't say woman to her when they were looking for her. He doesn't call his dad dude. Okay? Now, there's respect. But, but what he's showing here is there's, there's a changing of his loyalty. He had some loyalty as a son, but when he became baptized by the Holy Spirit, God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And he became son to the father more than he became son to Mary or son to Joseph. So after this baptism and his ministry's begun, he is a loyal and respectful son to his mother, but he's even more so to his father who is in heaven. Just listen to this. John 8, 28 and 29. Just let me read some passages to you. Let's don't turn to all of these. I'm going to, I'm going to cover quite a few in a moment. John 8, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. His loyalty is totally to the Father. Not so much to Mary. Because he does what the Father tells him to do. So Jesus said, listen to John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus is saying here, I cannot do what my mother tells me to do. I only do what my Father who is in heaven tells me to do. So there's a change here. Jesus is turning all of his loyalty and all of his obedience to God the Father and not Mary the mother the earthly mother, the human mother, the divine father is the one that Jesus is obedient to. So he is an obedient son, but not to Mary, to God the Father, while being respectful to Mary. He does the same thing. This is why I called the audible, Tony. He does the same thing in John 7, verses 3 through 10. That passage over there, it's his brothers talking to him, and his brothers say to him, no one works in secret, for if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers are saying, hey, you can do miracles. Go show the world your miracles. Be public. Dance a little in the end zone when you score. <laughs> and Jesus in that passage, he didn't go. He said, my time has not yet come. We'll look at that in a moment. But he went. He still did what his brothers urged him to do. But what does the passage say? He went in secret. He's going to do what Mary wants him to do. Or, or She doesn't tell him to do anything. She wants him to address a problem. He's going to address the problem. But he's going to do it in a way that she probably wouldn't order it. He's going to do it in a way that the Father ordered it. And he's going to do it in secret, we'll see as well. Because this wedding feast doesn't stop and their jaws don't drop to the ground at the miracle of the water into the wine. It's done in a very private, close-knit group because his hour has not yet come. And it's not for his glory that he does anything. It's for the glory of the Father. So what does this have to do with me? Hey, Mary, I'm, I'm here to honor the Father, not me. And yes, there's a problem, and this problem will get addressed. Why don't you let me do this as the Father instructs. That's what I think is going on here in this passage. So Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus is looking to obey only God the Father in all things. Now we're going to camp out on a real simple phrase that I'm going to tell you is loaded 
with profound meaning for you and me. <laughs> this is a massive phrase in all of the Bible. And this is a phrase that is commonly repeated throughout the book of John. And that's when Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. That's a sermon in and of itself. We're going to devote a lot of time to it here this morning. But my hour has not yet come has profound meaning for you and me and for Mary and the disciples and all of his brothers and sisters and even for the feast. So watch the scriptural evidence. And here we're going to look through quite a few scriptures. John 7, 6 through 8, which we have read, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. John 7.30 So they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It's like a drumbeat throughout the whole book of John. There's an hour, an appointed hour, and until it comes, things won't happen. And when it does come, things will happen. And Jesus, in his divine sovereignty, in his omniscience, he knows everything he knows when his hour will come. And he says here, it is not here yet. What is this hour? Is this the hour for him to bust out and show himself for who he is? Well, in a way. But this hour throughout the book of John always, always, always points to the cross and his death in the place of you and me. That's what his hour is. That's the hour that he is perpetually looking towards. We see a shift in Jesus' gaze. He says his hour has not yet come. In Luke 9.51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles will say set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. So now he said, there's that hour, and I'm walking straight towards that hour. Not going to meander around. Not going to take detours. It's time. We're going to that hour that's been appointed for me. We see in John 12, 23 and 24, look at this. It's changed now. He said all these other verses, my hour has not yet come. In John 12, he says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, you hear the hour, it's going to be a death, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the hour that Jesus is saying is upon him is that hour of death on a cross. John twelve twenty seven, Jesus praying to the Father, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So don't deliver me from this hour, Father. This is the purpose that I have come for this moment in time on a bloody cross on behalf of those that would believe in me. John 13, 1, in the upper room before the feast, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So there's this hour again that's now been appointed. And the last one I'll reference for you is John 17, 1. 
when Jesus is praying in front of the disciples to God the Father, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son might glorify you. So we gather this morning to worship a divinely sovereign, omniscient Jesus Christ who knew when his hour was there. And until that hour came, no one could divert him from doing what the Father would have him to do. And he did things in secret so that people wouldn't expedite him to death or expedite him to be a royal king. No, he stayed under the radar screen. He stayed humble when he could have busted out at any moment and glorified himself with all of his divine attributes. So the ultimate obedience, the ultimate hour that we see is when Jesus in Luke 23:46 calls out with a loud voice, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. There's the hour that had not yet come in John 2. The rest of scripture points to the truth of God's sovereignty over time and all the things that happened. Romans 5:6, "For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly." You hear this element of time and sovereignty? At the right time, he died. His hour had come. Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then I love Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days. So I say to you this morning, we worship a God that's outside of time, yes, but he's mindful of time because he created us in time. And he's watching. And he's saying, when that moment comes, I'm going to send my son. And when that moment comes, my son's going to be baptized. And when that moment comes, I'm going to call some disciples to that son and they're going to follow him. And they're going to tell people that they found the Messiah. And when that moment comes, my son's going to go to Jerusalem. And when that moment comes, my son will be betrayed by the one that I have raised up to betray him. And when that moment comes, my son will be crucified on a cross. And when that moment comes, he will breathe his last and give up his spirit. And when that moment comes, he will rise from the dead on the third day. And when that moment comes, he will encounter all kinds of disciples and people, more than 500, Scripture says, and they will witness that he rose from the dead. And when that moment comes, my son will ascend to heaven in bodily form and sit at my right hand, and he will make intercession for all those that will believe in me until it's the right moment for that moment to come when I send him again to the earth to gather up his church and to judge the wicked once and for all, for all eternity. That's the God that Rocky Point Baptist Church worships. That's why we gather here. We are confident that the God that we worship is sovereign over all of time. He's not surprised by anything that happens in our lives. Do you believe that? Do you look at the circumstances in your life? Do you see that you've run out of wine figuratively? And you say, we're without hope. 
Or do you realize, no, I have been bought, my Redeemer lives, and He is sovereign over all things in my life, and at the right time, I'll get a job. At the right time, my children will profess Jesus Christ as Lord. At the right time, I will meet my husband or my wife-to-be. And at the right time, God will take me home. Not early, not late, not outside of His control. At the right time, everything will happen in my life as I follow after this sovereign God who bought me, who created me, and who saved me. So that is the God that we've gathered this morning and that we gather every time we meet together to worship. And I pray, as I've prayed all this week, that you know that God is the God of all time. Nothing is outside of his span of control. There's another reference. I've kind of alluded to it in this. The, the other Gospels do speak of an hour, and that hour being the hour of Jesus' death. But there's also reference to an hour when Jesus will come again. Listen to Matthew 24. It's also cited over in Mark. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the, only the Father knows. For were the, as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, also, you must rely, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I want you to weigh that for all that it's worth. I want you to leave here today saying, God is sovereign over the hours in His kingdom. And His kingdom is all that exists. So there's an appointed hour for all of us, an hour to be born, an hour to be saved, and yes, there's an hour for us to die. And like the psalmist David in Psalm 39 said, O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Only God can make known the hours of our days. So we see here that Jesus is a sovereign Savior who has come to be obedient to the Father and humble every step of the way. Let's go to verse 6 now, John 2. Let's read 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone, who serves, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. We'll go quickly through this, some of this. First of all, let's look and see that the material world obeys its creator. The material world obeys its creator. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. After we see that in these last days God spoke to us by the Son, it says, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Jesus created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the material universe was made by Christ John 1, 3 says that, by the way. And the material world is held together by the word of Christ. If Jesus Christ relaxed his word one second, the whole world would just dissipate. 
The heavens, the stars, and everything, poof, would powder, would vaporize, gone. Jesus holds together all things by the word of his power. And so we see here that Jesus has taken water and he's turned it into wine, and so the material world has obeyed Christ. Just like when God spoke and it happened, Jesus thought, perhaps, and water became wine. And that water and that wine, that, it was obedient to the Creator. And let me tell you, Jesus does this every day with grapes. <laughs> There's grapes hanging out on vines year-round. He does this all the time. He takes water and turns it into wine. This is nothing for Christ. Think about this. Think about evaporation. Water's in our stock tanks. Evaporate up to the heavens. The clouds get heavy, and at the right time, God says, fall back to the earth. Evaporation happens every day all around the globe. Jesus is doing it. Think about photosynthesis. Light. Hit those leaves on that plant, turn into oxygen, people breathe it, live. Jesus Christ does photosynthesis, not nature. Jesus Christ conducts photosynthesis. He's doing it right now. Caterpillar to butterfly. Pretty powerful. It was done by Christ, not some force of nature. He did it. And so water to wine, he does it all the time. All the time. He just happened to do it in an expedited form here in front of his family and his disciples. They've never seen it happen like that. Normally he spreads it out over time. But our Christ, he can do these things. And these are true miracles in the Bible. These aren't allegorical stories. So don't, don't take the material world that we live in for granted. When you see the sun shining, know that there's something powerful happening beyond the sun shining down on some plants. When you see butterflies, know that they were not that from the beginning. And you need to know that he is that sovereign over all elements of the world and of the creation, and they all obey him. Let's look at the second thing that I'll show you here. What a great wedding gift <laughs> Jesus gave to these people. This is the wedding gift to end all wedding gifts. First of all, Consider the quantity of wine Jesus gave to this wedding feast. Six water jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons. My math says that's 120 to 150 gallons of wine on the spot. No questions asked. Consider the quality. Because the, the maitre d' says, wow, normally you give the good stuff first, get everybody a little bit tipsy so that they can't discern that it's poor wine coming second. But you bridegroom you brought the good stuff out last so this was high quality wine jesus does things to a high degree of quality the third thing about this wedding gift look how timely it was celebration's about to stop man the music's coming down and everybody's going to lock up because the wine is gone but right on time jesus provides what was lacking and what was lacking, remember, wine is a symbol of blessing. Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. And Jesus is the one that provides the wine so that that can all be continued. And then lastly, look at how unconditional Jesus' gift is. No fanfare. No spotlight. He wants to be unknown in this deed. He's known only by his mother 
and his disciples and some of those servants. But the whole wedding party and the maitre d' and the bridegroom, they know nothing of this. And Jesus doesn't want any glory or grandeur. And this brings to mind Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what a great wedding gift that Jesus gave, and he gave it totally incognito, totally under the radar screen. Let's move to item number three on your outline. What is the purpose of Jesus' signs? This is the first of seven signs that we see in the book of John, and they all happen in the first 12 chapters of the book. Because from 13 on, it's cross, it's cross, it's cross. The hour has come, starting in verse 13, chapter 13. So this is the first of signs. There's also immediately after this, next week's sermon, the cleansing of the temple, that's a sign. There's the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. There's the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. There's the feeding of the multitude in chapter 6. There's the healing of a blind man, chapter 9. And then there's the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Those are the seven signs that we see in the book of John. There's other signs in the other Gospels, but we're looking at John here today. And these signs are given for reasons. Now remember from last week what Jesus said to Nathaniel in John 1.50. He says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Well, here's one of the greater things. Water to wine. Nathaniel witnessed this and was stunned. So we see that he... This is the first of seven signs. Now, what are the purposes of these signs? Well, we see it there in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. So Jesus conducts these signs to manifest his glory, number one. Brings to mind John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen a manifestation of the glory of God in the fact that his Son, the Word, became flesh. So these signs are done that we'll be looking at through the next two Sundays. These signs are done to manifest Jesus' glory. Now let's circle back because we have a miracle here that we haven't said, okay, how does this manifest Christ's glory? The ultimate sign here is found in the jars at this wedding. Let's go back and look at these jars. He takes half-full jars, and he has them filled, and he turns that into wine. So in this miracle, in this sign, is Jesus just being a wizard? Are we going to read this wedding at Cana? scenario and leave here go yeah jesus is a pretty powerful man he took some water and he turned it into wine elements obeying pretty big god isn't he let's go eat if we take that approach to this passage we're going to miss profound truth because there's something really really significant about these jars and this water and this wine remember these signs are done so that jesus can manifest his glory So how in the world do we get water to wine in the glory of Christ? Well, this, first of all, we've already talked about running out of wine is a symbol of barrenness. And the Israel that Jesus came to in the flesh was barren. 
God deemed that it was the right time for the Son to come to reveal God once and for all. And so in this spiritual barrenness, this running out of wine, Jesus comes to this wedding. And we need to understand what jars of purification are for. These aren't drinking water jars that we dip into and get a drink out of. No, the religious ritual of the Israel nation was heavily intensified around the idea of washing. You wash your hands, you wash your feet, you wash your pots and your pans and your cups and your plates and your utensils. You wash everything ceremonially. They weren't scared of germs. It was ceremonially out of obedience to God who commanded such in his law back in the days of Leviticus. And so these were jars not used for drinking. They were used for washing. Said another way, they're jars of purification. These jars were to purify oneself before they partook of food. So it seems that Jesus wants to say here what his hour will be like. Mary, mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let me show you what this has to do with me. I will make the purification rituals of Israel defunct, and I will replace them with a decisively new way of purification, namely in my blood. For you see, wine in the New Testament over and over again points to the blood of Christ. Can you hear the Lord's Supper ringing in your ears now? He took, the, he took the cup after giving thanks, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we drink wine or grape juice in remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. And so we need to understand that these jars of purification, half full with dirty water, filled to the brim, converted into wine, is a symbol of Jesus saying, here's what my hour will look like when it comes. I will shed my blood and you will drink it figuratively and you will be purified from your sins forever. That's a little bit bigger deal than taking some jars and turning them into wine and moving on down the road. And yeah, he's a wonder worker. No, he's pointing to his hour of shedding blood on your behalf so that you can drink fully the blood of Christ and be purified. Listen to John 6, 53 and following. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So Jesus shows Mary and the disciples, purification jars, water, turn to wine, my hour when it comes, I will purify people with my blood. That's the message of the wedding at Cana. And so this is a sign. It's an acted out parable of how his own death, his own blood, his own hour will be the final and decisive and ultimate purification for sins. There's no ritual anymore, no ritualistic ceremonial cleansing anymore. 
There's only one way to be clean before God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ and His shed blood in your, in your place on His cross, the cross that you deserved to hang on. So the glory of Jesus is that He's once and all made purification for sins. And we see that in Hebrews 1, verse 3. Okay? In these last days, God's spoken to us by His Son. He made the whole world through His Son. His Son upholds the world by the word of His power. And then, after making purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's what's going on here. Purification, symbolic of what Jesus will do for the nation of Israel and those who will believe in Him. And so, the last thing that we'll see is what is the purpose of Jesus' signs? The purpose, ultimately, is to bring about belief. Not to self-promote, but to bring about belief. And in this case, he only wants to bring about belief in the hearts of his disciples and his mother, his family. He's not ready to go public yet. And John 20, verse 30 through 31, closes with this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Remember, he recorded seven in the book of John. He, re- he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? Do you see the sign of turning water to wine and understand that that's purification for you should you choose to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you been, therefore, washed in the blood of Jesus? It's crazy language, isn't it? Christians, man, Christians talk so crazy saying, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Well, it's symbolic language. And when you read the Bible, it's not crazy anymore. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he's purifying people by washing them with his blood. Have you been washed? You need to be washed. Every one of us is dirty. We're corrupt. We have fallen. We are sinful. But there is a way that we can be redeemed by a living Redeemer. And that's through faith. And I pray this morning that you that have faith have more faith as a result of seeing this sign that Jesus did at this wedding. And I pray that if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you might just now for the first time go, yeah, there's, there's something about Christ. I need to pursue Him a little bit more. I need to gather some understanding about Him because something's ringing true here in my heart. I pray that's the case for you this morning. And I pray that you'll be humble and respond to Him should He call you to faith. And let's pray. Father, we, we stop and we acknowledge that Your Son... Jesus Christ, God Himself, is an all-powerful Son. We understand that He created all things. We understand that He holds all things together by the word of His power. We understand that in His sovereign omnipotence, He turned water into wine in a flash. But God, we understand that He does that every single day on grapevines out in fields. We just don't see it happening instantaneously like we did in this passage. 
Father, we understand that everything that happens in the created world is a miraculous act of You and Your Son every time. And I pray that we would leave here worshiping You more for who You really are as we experience Your creation. But Father, we also understand that there is new creation that You're about, that You want people to be born again, purified, washed, and presented clean and blameless. And it only happens through the blood of Jesus Christ on a bloody cross at a specific hour that You appointed from long ago. Father, I pray that You would bring belief upon the hearts of everybody in this room of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the only way that we can be right with You is through His blood. And I pray that we would worship You in spirit and truth, understanding that for all it's worth. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.